Welcome to Trashy Divorces, friends. Trashy Divorces. The Tears of a Clown. We are doing two controversial comedians this week, and I think we thought it was going to be a lot. I thought it was going to be very... I, I thought I would... I. Thought I'd be dunking on Roseanne Barr, but it turns out her really screwed up life is pretty sad. You had a, well, yours made me cry. I'm not going to lie. I was surprised that you actually did the crying. Richard Pryor. Yeah. uh, Now you've got a beautiful portrayal of him. Tragedy of a life story. This week, Tears of a Clown, recorded by Smokey Robinson and the Miracles, written by Hank Cosby, Smokey Robinson, and Stevie Wonder, which I didn't know. Released in 1967 on a subsidiary of Motown Records. Released again in the UK in 1970. Becomes a number one hit there. Released in the US, number one all over. Tears of a Clown. Yeah. When there's no one around. Yeah. It was a fitting No, it's really, theme, it I think, for this week. Ended up being perfect. I mean, it's like, it's kind of common knowledge that comedians' personal lives are dumpster fires, but... I really, I just thought, I thought this would be funnier. Oh, well. It was a good, good no, story. No, no, super trashy. I know we're a comedy podcast. Oh my gosh, yes. This week, if there was a ranking for... Trash Factor 20. We got it for you. All right. Let's do a quick little bit of housekeeping. Yeah, we yeah, have yeah. a Halloween spooktacular episode, maybe in the works. Send us your trashy divorces. Yes, please send us your trashy divorces if you were... Dumped on Halloween in particular, we want to know about it. Um, if uh, if a three hundred year old pirate ghost stole your ex from you, we would like to know. We all need to know this story. <laughs> Send your trashy divorces to trashydivorces at gmail dot com. We have a big magic mirror this week. I'm so excited. We have a magic mirror that's not at all haunted. It's it's Ooh. a it's a spook free magic mirror. Thank you, everybody, this week for joining Team Trash Candy. Mm -hmm. Who did we have? Uh, We had, and again with great thanks, Eleanor A., Michelle C., Vivian E., Sarah L., Elizabeth D., Kate H., Karen, Roxanne A., Maeve O., Felicia D., Maxine T., Davina H., Deborah B., Elaine R., Amber Kimberly J, Jessica S, Quinn B C, and Melissa H. With tremendous fanfare and thanks. Seriously. Thanks for supporting us. Welcome to Team Trash Candy. Eco-friendly balloons released by the billions. What did everybody hear on Patreon this week, Stacey? So we did, we, Hamilton. Or Hamilton, Hamilton adjacent, anyway. We went Hamilton this week. So yeah, you had the trashy divorces of... Tell, tell, tell them what you did. Oh, Aaron Burr. The trashy sir. divorce of Aaron Burr, sir. But his love affair with Theodosia getting to the marriage that became a trashy divorce. And Wednesday, we couldn't leave. No. We couldn't leave it on the couldn't no, leave it on the stage. You no, picked no. up Mariah Reynolds. Yep. The Reynolds pamphlet. Yeah. A little side piece with uh, Adot Ham and his uh, very trashy. The thing about it is, though, there is an alternate interpretation of events. That is actually way more interesting as a Put possibility. Put on your tinfoil hat. Yeah, it is. It's not, I guess they would say it's not canon with the musical, but it's a really fascinating alternative view that made me really happy to find out about. So You can't say no to that. No. Thursday, we had our usual trashy tidbits, which followed up from last week's story mm-hmm. on the Paul Simon's a prick part. Yep. Also, the Scorpio episode of yeah. Trastrology came out. So it was a fun week on Patreon. 
You can join up by going to patreon.com slash trashy divorces for just hours and hours and hours of tasty, trashy content. You can't last between Sundays. We got you, boo. Oh, we got we so got much you. over there. All right. Tears of a clown. I mean. When there's no one around. Let's. Yeah. Get you ready. ready to get the show started? May as well. <laughs> Let's go, go, go. So, Alicia, what tearful clown do you have for us this week in our parade of tearful clowns? It, it, Richard Pryor. Welcome to our comedy show that I know. is not going to be funny. Richard Pryor, y'all. Legendary comic genius. I mean, 100% out-and-out comedic genius. Yeah. He changed the way everything in comedy happens. Richard Pryor had, you ready? Five wives, six trashy divorces, and seven marriages. Whoa. (laughs) Richard Pryor also has a childhood that would haunt him every single day, leading to both his professional success and his own self-implemented destruction through drugs. All the drugs. So many drugs. Richard Pryor, born December 1st, Sagittarius baby. Okay. He's born in 1940 to a mother who was a prostitute. I guess we'd say sex worker now. Mm -hmm. His dad is also a pretty violent pimp. Sorry, sex procurer. Richard's grandmother owns three brothels in Peoria, Illinois. In the 40s? 30s, 40s? Wow. Wow. She owns three brothels in Peoria. So grandma's kind of a big deal. Entrepreneurial success story. Probably not the greatest place to raise a child. I would not think. Poor Richard gets expelled from his Catholic school when the nuns find out about what the family business is. Oh, my God. Like, how is that not the kid that you need to lavish all the extra attention and support on? Like, that is disgraceful. Well, he, Richard Pryor says, I didn't care so much for me, but it made my mother cry. She wasn't very strong, but she tried. At least she didn't flush me down the toilet like some. Hold on. Richard, as a child, finds a dead infant in a shoebox. Oh, my God. that's real. This kid comes from just a world of pain and hurt. What chance did he have to actually build a healthy relationship? I'll let you decide. Yeah. Mom and dad are pretty volatile. His dad, Leroy, is incredibly violent. Richard sees his mom nearly beaten to death by his father at a young age. That'll scar you. His parents split when he is five, and his primary caretaker becomes grandma, who he loves. He calls her mama, and she's a madam, but there's this opposite aspect of almost pride like she's a business lady doing it and she keeps food on the table and a roof over his head and but Richard lives in the brothel he grows up on the top floor of the brothel and as a kid he really likes movies he says you always know why the woman is screaming in the movies living on the top floor of a Mm. brothel you hear a lot of sounds and as a kid he has no idea what is happening to those girls Okay, another horrendous thing is going to happen to him. He's sexually abused at the age of six by a man in the neighborhood. So this kid grows up like so many comics. They turn to funny to hide the pain and the hurt and the trauma. And the out of Catholic school gets to another school. And he just wants to perform. Like he loves it. And he is the class clown. And he'll interrupt anybody to perform. So his teacher's like, listen, dude, 
I'll give you a spot every week on Friday. You've got a 20-minute stand-up act on Friday if you'll behave the rest of the week. Like, there's a teacher who mm, yeah. helps. How do I right. produce you into a right. creative outlet? How do I motivate you to, yeah. So he has a pretty good early start at performing and crossing the line. By the time he's 16, he has a girlfriend. There's a baby. Richard isn't going to be into any of his kids for a long time in his life. His first wife happens super early. He's married at the age of 20 in 1960 to a gal named Patricia Price. They're divorced the following year. Yikes. Wife one, done. Hmm. But he wants to be a comedian. And in the early 60s, there is one black man that is accepted by the white folks, and that's Bill Cosby. And I know it is amazing to think of now, but in the early 60s, Bill Cosby was hot shit. I actually didn't know his career went back that far, but okay. Yeah. Yeah. In the early 60s, there he was the breakthrough black comedian and nobody, like, there's a perception around, like, he wasn't white. He was clean cut. His act was, a like, white audiences embraced him for his new way of doing, I mean, it's the early 60s. Yeah. Crazy pants. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Sammy Davis Jr. would be another. Exactly. Um, but yeah, someone who. Yeah, just the, the Malcolm Gladwell podcast about his career is heartbreaking. So it's hard to think of now. Bill Cosby was actually hot shit, and he's quite a role model for Richard. Richard doesn't really have his own material yet, so he works a lot of Bill Cosby stuff over. Because Bill's super clean cut. He isn't dirty. He plays to all audiences, and Richard can't really draw on his childhood being brought up in a brothel no, no. Um, that's not going to play for middle america mm -mm. and with this imitation routine richard starts playing the black clubs on the circuit he's on the tour of the struggling artist like sure, what you do sure, yep so in 1963 he lands in new york city and he's playing in clubs like the bitter end and cafe wa he's starting to see some edgier comics lenny bruce is a great example and prior, like, begin seeing something other than clean cut. Right. And at this point, all other young people ever through time, like, seeking to find himself. And his voice is a comic, and he's having some success. But he's still performing, like, clean cut stuff. But he gets gigs on variety shows, which gets him a gig in Vegas, which goes on swimmingly. Until one night in September 1967. So he's performing in Las Vegas. Richard is doing a show at the Aladdin Hotel and he looks out. There's Dean Martin in the front. Sold out audience. He's looking around and there's not one other black face in the room. And he looks at the audience and says into the mic, what the fuck am I doing here? <gasps> Drops mic, walks off stage. Really? He calls it his epiphany. It's just this realization that this is all bullshit. And at this point, his comedy starts to change. He's not going to be Cosby anymore. Now he's got vulgarity and profanity and the N-word into his routines, which is a breakthrough for him and his comedy, but it's also going to lead him to a nervous breakdown <laughs> and a second wife. <laughs> wife two, Shelly. Lasts from 1967 to 1969. Wife number two is done pretty fast. He also releases a comedy album. On the opposite side of this, both of his parents pass away Yikes. in a very short time after this. 1967, his mom Gertrude 
1968, his dad, Leroy. Like, mom has abandoned him at 10. It's not like he is close with either right. parent. It's but still got to be a psychic blow. The death of a parent is, for mm-hmm. the human adult, one of the top of three stressors that will happen, mm-hmm. right, in your life. But even during 1968, he's snorting $100 of cocaine a day. He's been arrested for assault and battery. Gosh, it's like the favorite drug of trashy divorces subjects. Stay away Um, from the hard stuff, man. He is sued for beating that wife, wife beating. Oh, my God. He's accused of stabbing a landlord with a fork, uh, beating a hotel clerk. So you wonder why it might not have worked out Mm. for Shelly. Yeah. This is... During this period of reconstruction... Say that instead of nervous breakdown. Sure. He heads out in 1969 to California and observes and sort of joins the counterculture. So it's hippies and the Black Panthers and there's change all around and people doing things in new ways and also drugs. Yeah. More drugs. Mm -hmm. So many drugs. Mm -hmm. But by the early 70s, he's breaking through and he's writing for the Flip Wilson show. He's writing for Lily Tomlin. He's writing for Sanford and Son. He's got movie parts. He's putting out hit albums with his comedy because that's how it was done before Netflix. Right. You had albums. And even before Comedy Central on cable television. Yeah. That's it. You released an album as your work as a comic and it was passed around and your parents went to bed at night and you as a kid grabbed that album and Mm -hmm. went and played it in your bedroom. Like, I remember doing this with. Like the early comics of the 1980s, Eddie Murphy Raw um, is one that was made the way yeah. around the middle school. Yeah. Anyway, albums, crazy pants. Richard Pryor co-writes Blazing Saddles, too, with Mel Brooks. But his drugging and antics are so out of control, no studio will insure him. So for as many movies as he made in the 70s and 80s, he didn't make half the movies he could have because studios see him as too much of a risk. Right. But he's changing comedy. And his acts have gone from clean stuff to very edgy social yeah. commentary. That's I didn't know he had like a, a clean stuff phase. Like to me, mm-hmm. he just like by the time I was conscious of stand up comedy, like, yeah, it was edgy as hell. Yeah. Ed, like, and pushing boundaries, which are not many for him. He is playing different characters in the same scenes long before Tyler Perry is doing the same thing. Richard Pryor is the first black comedian to openly address integrated audiences. Like, he is cutting edge, pushing the line. Also, it's just fun time in 1975 that Lorne Michaels actually threatens to quit Saturday Night Live to the powers that be at NBC because he really wants Richard Pryor on as a guest. And the heads up are like, no way. that is not going to happen. And, and and a young Lorne Michaels is like, why am I even doing this if I can't, if I can't have comedy like this on my show? Well, Lorne Michaels agrees to put a five-second censor uh, on, but doesn't tell Richard Pryor, who sure. finds out later, like, I never would have done it if I knew that you were going to do that. But he's the first black person to host Saturday Night Live. And, like, Richard, cutting edge. He's found his own comedy. He's not afraid of anything. He's fearless. He is openly bringing the N-word into the culture. Like, this is not Bill Cosby comedy anymore. He even gets his own show in 1977. And let me tell you about the cast he brings together. 
Robin Williams, Paul Mooney, Sandra Bernhardt, Tim Reed. They make four or seven episodes, way controversial, loaded with talent, get shut down pretty quick. He has two famous side chicks during this time as well, because he's single. Pam Greer and Margot Kidder. Wow. Also, according to sources and validated by a future wife we're going to get to in just a second, as well as Quincy Jones, Richard has a sexual relationship with Marlon Brando. Wow. They say that Richard was really open about his bisexuality. Richard, even in his autobiography, talks about a two-week affair he had with a drag queen. I discovered that she was actually a he. For some reason, I didn't care. But after two weeks of being gay, I went back to life as a heterosexual. <laughs> okay. I mean, I, I don't know. The 60s, 70s in California, New York, like, okay. So there's some pretty significant drug and alcohol abuse added to his own insecurities and a shit ton of past trauma that was never really dealt with. Yeah. Like, yeah, no, it sounds like that childhood was the opposite of setting him up for success. Therapy's better than drugs, mm -hmm. right? Well, mm. drugs allow you to mask. Oh, okay. Yeah. So let's talk about Pam Greer for a second. They break up because she beats him twice in tennis. <laughs> okay. I'm glad that the phrase in tennis was, like, yeah, I didn't uh, know where that was going. Richard says in 1978, I love strong, smart women, but I feel inadequate to them. Hmm. Wife number three happens in 1977. Her name is Deborah McGuire. This is going to go badly pretty early on. Richard, on New Year's Eve, chases her friends out of the house and is later that night booked for assault with a deadly weapon as he fires gunshots into his car on the driveway as Deborah is trying to use the car to get away from him. So not a great start. No, no. He tells people that same year, I don't know why I do self-destructive things like that. I want to learn by my mistakes. Fair. Richard and Deborah like, still are kind of feeling the love, but she tells people as well, a lot of things were said in anger that will be hard to smooth over. Also, the volley of bullets. Tough to smooth that over. Richard just can't argue. He waits until something gets under his skin so bad, uh, he blows up. Ah, uh, okay. So just deeply passive aggressive, I guess. And then... After the split, Richard Pryor again tells people, For a long time, I saw women as sexual objects, and I was always trying to keep them from getting hurt. Then one day they'd pack up and leave, taking something more with them than their clothes. They took my happiness. <laughs> I've finally gotten to the stage where I'm trying to understand women as friends. I'd rather rob a bank than mess with women the way I used to. Okay, this may or may not be true. So, let's go forward. Throughout this time, Richard's becoming a father. He's going to be a father seven times over. He's a father for the first time at the age of 16 and... 1957 with his Peoria girlfriend. Right. He has his last child in 1987. Some of these are in marriage. Some are side chicks, but dude has a lot going on. Up until this split, he wasn't really into being a dad. But this split gets him a little bit closer to his kids. Now, during the marriage of Deborah, wife number four has been located, or at least she has located Richard Pryor. Okay. Jennifer Lee is her name, and she can tell you the exact day she met Richard Pryor, August 22nd, 1977. He's redecorating his home in the San Fernando Valley, and she was hired to 
help redecorate. She's a struggling actress. She has had liaisons with a lot of men. Threesomes with Warren Beatty and Roman Polanski. Hmm. An affair with Ryan O'Neill and Clint Eastwood Hmm. as well. But she sees Richard and she is instantly hooked. She knows who he is, but she doesn't really know his comedy or his stage persona. She just falls for him. She says when they first met, he was blue, heartsick over a woman who was running game on him. He was putting a major dent in a big bottle of vodka. You could feel the tears and smell the gardenias, even with hip, white-walled nasal passages. Hmm. (laughs) Since that first meeting, she tells in an interview in The New Yorker, she would be his head bitch. What no one else gets, she says, is that one of the ways Richard became popular was through women falling in love with him. They saw themselves in him in his not fitting in, the solitude of it all, and his willingness to be vulnerable as women are, and disenfranchised, of course, as women are. She says when she first started working on the reno, he would trot a different woman out every morning, and she gets to see the whole romance arc and destruction of Deborah too, but she is continued to be struck by his complete and total vulnerability. And all of the crazy behavior he has ends up in his acts. Jennifer says it was great material. So yeah, he had his moments where he'd go, yeah, I fucked up again. But the lemonade side of that was, look at how he would turn that into art. Everything yeah. is copy. Everything is copy. People have asked her, like, how could you start dating him after what he did to the wife that you saw go in and out? Right. Like, what was the problem? Did you need more information? Feel the red flags. Yeah, like, there's a like, dance on into it. She just adored him. Mm-hmm. Richard didn't want a nurse. He wanted a ride or die bitch. He wanted somebody who could hang. I could hang. Everything else were just obstacles to be battered away. I just stood very calm and did my work and stood in the background and got to know him. We had these long talks and I fell in love with him. So now Jennifer Lee and Richard are in love. But Richard has found a new love. Freebasing cocaine. I was going to say, is it cocaine? Oh, my God. It's not just coke. He's been doing coke for a decade. Yeah. Now it's freebasing. Okay. And this is smoking cocaine? Is that? Yeah. You light it on fire. Cool. Cool. Inhale. Okay. Yeah. Quick action. his new girlfriend, freebase, is going to cause a pretty big rift. I would think. In the relationship with Jennifer. And every other relationship, I would imagine. She moves out because the drug moved in. Mm. So she's, Jennifer's out. And she's not around that infamous June night in 1980 when Richard, having freebased for five straight days with no sleep, yeah, he is in a cocaine-driven delusion. Like his yeah. brain chemistry is yeah. no longer... Psychosis, yeah. It, yes. Sets himself on fire. Good God. And runs almost two miles down the road until an ambulance can catch up with him. So because of... Was this a suicide attempt? No, or? I'm going to tell you. Okay. Uh, it's alleged, right? It was a freebasing accident. Gotcha. Because he is, oh God. So I watched this video. I don't know how to freebase, but I, <laughs> I get middle-aged women. Trying to I have not freebased in, in my life. What does this mean? So I got to watch this video about could this accident have caused his ultimate, you know, cardiac arrest, but n- 1977, he'd already had a cardiac arrest. Really? In 1990, he has another one again. Like, he is... 
And he just continually keeps... doing damage to his body. Right. You know, what's really good for the heart is cocaine. So what he does is you have a like piece of cotton or something, some kind of rag, and he's dipping that on a long stick into 151 rum, fucking Everclear, and then confused. lighting that, which he's using as the flame to heat the freebase pipe. I'm glad you YouTubed that. That's not going to get you on any lists at all. <laughs> totally. The trashy Divorces has us on all the lists. Okay. So it's assumed that it is a freebasing accident because of the... the Bacardi, he spilled the Bacardi on him or something. and He later admits that in this drug-fueled psychosis, he's hanging out with a friend of his, and they have been watching the footage of the Vietnamese monk who burned himself to death. Oh. And they're watching it and he's like, he's not even flinching. He's not even. And in his yeah. cocaine delusion, yeah. he decides it would be a great idea to set himself ablaze. Drugs are bad. Dr Stay away from the hard stuff. Gentle tip. Okay. Richard has third degree burns on over 50% of his body. Oh he's given a one in three chance of survival. But he does survive. He does survive. He's discharged in six weeks. Wow. Within a year, he's back on stage. Wow. So with a six-week hospital rehab program, because they don't let you freebase, they have a lot of drugs, but it's not freebasing cocaine. So you're not allowed to smoke them. Interesting. <laughs> After this, Jennifer's even more in love, right? He does another album. I think he's back on coke at this point, but... <laughs> toned it down. Toned it down speaking. a little. Jeez. Jennifer and Richard marry in Maui in June of 1981. But even on the wedding day, the best man recalls that Richard comes to his door a few hours after the wedding and already wants a divorce. Like, <sighs> trauma's still trauma, and his abuse continues. And in October of 1982, they divorce. Marriage is wow. 13 months. Wife number four, Oh, done. poor her. But remember, I said seven marriages, uh, five wives. Mm. Don't forget about Jennifer. Okay. They don't stop loving each other, and they continue to see each other. He gets sober in 1983. This seems like a good first step toward living your best life. And maybe it's Jennifer leaving. Like, I'm not sure what prompts his sobriety mission in 1983, but he begins to make a change. He's performing less, but his comedy changes. He goes to Kenya. And upon that trip, he's like, I'm no longer using the N-word in my comedy. It's not, it's not funny. It's not. His vulgarity is different. His comedy shifts yet again. But this is a shift for his audiences. He sobers up and like it tends to do, makes a difference in, you know, how you live in. But his audience doesn't really know how to respond to non-edgy pushing the line right he's yeah he's he's not doing his classic stuff anymore and you know garden party uh okay so richard and his girlfriend the girl he's dating flynn belaine mm -hmm. have a son in 1984 okay in 1986 richard is diagnosed with degenerative multiple sclerosis wow he marries flynn belaine his girlfriend in october 1986 okay they're divorced 10 months later oh my in God. July of 1987. But he's got that thing, because hold on. <sighs> Flynn and Richard again remarry April of 1990 and are divorced by July of 1991. 
Wow. Wow. Wife five, marriage five, trashy divorce five, all done. Actually, not, trashy divorce five and six, done. Not equipped for love. We have one left. Okay. And no, here's, oh. here's where we get to the tender part. Okay. Okay. So after all that fallout happens, Richard's looking at what happens now. And he calls Jennifer Lee and asks her to come back. And he says, my life's a mess. Will you help me out? This is what she tells New Yorker. I thought long and hard about it. I wasn't sure it would last because Richard loves to manipulate people and see them dance. But see, he can't do that anymore because he finally bottomed. That's the only reason Richard is allowing his life to be in any kind of order right now. And thank God I did, she says. I came back to a mess. People were selling what wasn't nailed down. I mean, the children, the ex-wives, the girlfriends, business managers, lawyers. Wow. And I said, there's a new sheriff in town. Close the bank of prior. She moves back to L.A. to be with him. She gets there. He's in this rental for like $6,000 a month. She downsizes his living arrangements and gets his finances in order and becomes his helpmate and companion in this new sort of arrangement He's super sober, bound to a wheelchair. Wow. And physically, he may be compromised, but his brain and his genius and vulnerability has not diminished. Like, even during this time, he'll still show up at the comedy store in L.A. and do routines. Richard and Jennifer Lee marry again in 2001, and she stays by his side until his death in 2005. She says, he'd been asking me. And I said, no, you had your chance. You blew it. You screwed (laughs) up. And then it occurred to her that this is what real love is. It's not just about the party and the fun when everything's going well. It's about the rough stuff. And here, you didn't get any rougher. I had to deal with so many fires to put out. No pun intended. She stays by his side until December 2005. On December 10th, nine days after his 65th birthday, Pryor suffers his last and fatal heart attack in L.A. She tries to resuscitate him. Her attempts do not work. He dies that night in the hospital, and Jennifer's quoted as saying at the end, there was a smile on his face. Well, I mean, to have somebody who will love you like that, and Jennifer is his champion. She is oft quoted and used like just as a champion, and she says this thing that, It's just to have somebody love you like that. She says he existed in a place on stage. He existed in a place that was transcendent, was like gills on a fish. On stage, he can breathe, but he didn't know how to operate in the world. And drugs allowed him to be something other than himself with a memory. Right. A memory of that childhood. Like he should have been in therapy. He wasn't. He found drugs instead. The story is terribly sad Mm -hmm. and tragic with this big love boom packed at the end. Richard Pryor is the undisputed king of comedy Mm -hmm. in the late 70s. One of the greatest stand-up comedians of all time. Jerry Seinfeld refers to him as the Picasso of our profession. Chris Rock called him comedy's Rosa Parks. Dave Chappelle says, you know, those like evolution charts of man. He was the dude walking upright. Richard was the highest evolution of comedy. Lily Tomlin talks about him and his willingness to be vulnerable on stage. And there's just this immediacy of contact that the audience can relate to. 
Even Bill Cosby has said, Richard Pryor drew the line between comedy and tragedy as thin as one could possibly paint it. And I think that's apropos. I saw this clip of Dick Gregory talking about Richard Pryor, and he says if you took all of his records track to track and took out all the profanity and the vulgarity and the N-word, you can still hear the genius. All of that vulgarity and profanity was never used as the punchline. The truth of the joke was the punchline. Richard Pryor, tormented man, true comedic genius. He changed the way comedy was done, broke down barriers, pushed through walls. He won an Emmy, five Grammys. I didn't know this. He was the first ever recipient of the Kennedy Center Mark Twain Prize for American Humor in 1998. Hmm. One of the finest, if not the finest, stand-up comic of all time with the love from Jennifer Lee that lasted to the end of his days. Drew the line between comedy and tragedy as thin as you could possibly paint it. You got me all teared up. I got me all teared up. That's Richard Pryor. I mean, I'm... And his trashy divorces. I feel like I don't even want to ask about trash cans. I I don't know. Is this the first time ever? I can't. I... It's okay. Hold on. Let's, Let's think about this. That was a really beautifully done profile. Thank you. I don't even know how to... Let's skip them. Rate trash cans for this. It's nah. so sad. And yeah. just what chance did this guy ever, like, I don't know. But, like, what he did in life. So, no trash cans. That's fine. Hold on. How about a, a field full of trash cans filled with comedy and tragedy as thin as I could possibly paint it? <laughs> okay. There we go. That'll do. All right. Let's take a quick break. Let's. I need to go Coming dry my eyes. That was really well done. Thank you. We are doing great for our comedy podcast. No kidding. See you on the flip. It's just all yuck, yuck, yuck over here. Tears of a clown. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. So, Stacey, you have the feminine flip of the Tears of a Clown this week? I very much so. I think that in, you know, you were describing Richard Pryor as sort of having vulnerability that that women could relate to. I have Roseanne Barr, who her stand-up sort of reasserted a performance of the feminine that was sort of body armored in a way. Huh. Okay. No, I get that. That's an interesting way to look at yeah, it. Yeah, like took the vulnerable, like not on her TV show. That that was obviously a story about a family. There was plenty of vulnerability, but but her stand up, I think, was it was definitely groundbreaking in its own way. But sort of opposite yours, yeah. All right, let's let's go. All right. Well, I think we can all agree that Roseanne Barr's life has taken something of a turn in recent years. But when it comes to trashy marriages and divorces. Her early 1990s romance with fellow comic and actor Tom Arnold legendary, set a pretty spectacular bar, if you will. <laughs> so that's going to be the focus here uh, rather than the, I get the a little, arc epic. I get a little bit into the more recent stuff, but really, I mean, if you were not alive for this 
gosh, this was crazy. Gosh, golly, did you miss out? <laughs> All right, so a little biography to kind of set the stage. Roseanne Barr was born November 3rd, 1952. She's Scorpio. Got it. In Salt Lake City, Utah. She was the oldest of four children of Helen and Jerry Barr, and the family was Jewish in the 1950s in, in Salt Utah? Lake City, Utah. That had to have been uncomfortable. Had to have been. So, yeah, this presented some some challenges. So, on her father's side, the family had emigrated from Russia. Borisovsky was her paternal grandfather's name uh, when he arrived in the United States, and he changed it soon after to Bar. Her mother's side of the family emigrated from Austria, Hungary, and Lithuania, and her maternal grandmother was an important figure in her childhood. So to fit in, and let's face it, this was the 50s, like the Holocaust had just happened. Right. And I literally cannot imagine, like, what Jewish families the world over were going through. The family, perhaps sensibly, downplayed their Judaism, and they were involved in the Latter-day Saints Church, along with their neighbors and, you know, their kids' classmates. Roseanne has said that Friday, Saturday, and Sunday morning, I was a Jew. Sunday afternoon, Tuesday afternoon, and Wednesday afternoon, we were Mormons. How conflicting must that have been? Yeah, she would go, like, she'd go see her grandmother, and they would go to synagogue. Like, it was a very, and her grandmother was apparently very orthodox, just, uh, I don't know how they ended up in Salt Lake. I don't know. But if I had to pick a place in America <laughs> to settle as a Jewish immigrant, I that would not, not be on your top would, five list. Salt Lake would not be, not be where I go. All right. Yeah. Roseanne Barr, as uh, in elementary school, managed to become the president of a Mormon youth group. Is it? Okay. She was like basically preaching as a little, little kid. Okay. So there are also just weird things in her early life that kind of support the idea that she has been living with some mental health challenges from very early on. When she was three, she fell and hit her head on a coffee table, which caused paralysis on one side of her face. Oh, no. So I assume they saw a doctor, although the family legend of this does not specify. Mom calls the rabbi, and the rabbi comes, prays over little baby Roseanne, little three-year-old Roseanne. Time passes face is paralyzed. So mom's like, whatever, calls the Mormon preacher over. Oh, no. Mormon preacher prays over little little baby Roseanne. Two days later, her face is cured. Oh. Everything's fine. Okay, so. Praise the Lord and pass the ammunition. Yeah, I get the feeling this was like a super well, this sort of reaffirmed the family's like, no, no, the LDS church, it's okay. We can be Jewish and Mormon, like whatever. I'm not sure how they kind of split that. But anyway, as a teenager, Roseanne learns about a condition called Bell's palsy. Yeah, I was about to say that sounds a lot like Bell's palsy. Trauma to the seventh cranial nerve, also known as the facial nerve, Uh causes one side paralysis that resolves on its own. It does. So the rabbi got there too soon. The Mormon got there too, like right on time. (laughs) (laughs) But this revelation as a teenager that like this sort of foundational faith story in her life was bullshit like broke teenage Roseanne Barr, like broke her, like broke her faith. So she turns into this like teenage So it was a miracle after all. Basically, yeah. It was just nature. Yeah. God wasn't acting through, yeah, it was just the inflammation went down on that nerve. Like, 
So she begins acting out, lashing out. It's the late 60s. Her parents do not know what to do with her. They don't put any boundaries on her. There is booze. There is weed. There is sex. They've got three other kids to raise. Like, she just went wild. And they didn't know how to stop her. And so they didn't stop her. At the age of 16, she's hit by a car causing, like, apparently significant head trauma that led to major personality changes, and she spent the next eight months in a psychiatric institution. What? Yeah. Like, apparently the hood ornament maybe, like, fractured the back of her skull or something. Like, anyway, seems bad. Seems really, but really she bad. she survives. She survives. She gets out of the institution at the age of 17. Oh, my God. She learns she's pregnant. All the... Booze and weed and sex. Wow. Um, and her again, her parents at this point are just like, what What the hell are we? So they send her to Denver for a home for unwed mothers. She has the baby. She adopts the baby through like the Jewish children's services or something. And weirdly, she is reunited with her with her daughter like 18 years later. And the family who adopted the baby is like... Their best friend is her mom's best friend. What? Yeah, they were one degree of separation the whole time, but no one put it together. No one put the timing together. It was really just just weird, just tiny little world. Wow. Okay. So I think by this point, things were frayed enough in her family that there was just, there was no upside to like living in Salt Lake for her and there was no downside to moving to Denver. So she goes back packs her things, heads up to Denver. And in 74, she marries a guy named Bill Pentland, who she met when he was clerking at a motel. Okay. And she was basically homeless at the time. So like it was a, it was a fast love, but it was a real love. And it lasted for a long, long time. And they had three children together. And oh, wow. When they started having babies in 1975, and I think they had three, like each. Pretty quick. 75, 76, 77. Okay. So he goes to work at the post office to support the family, and he is there basically until her stand-up career blows up a decade later. Okay. So, like, he's just a good dude. And she's a housewife? Yeah, she, I think she works as a cocktail waitress or something. Sure. And her banter with the customers is... What leads her to... mm, People start going, like, you should go check out the comedy club up the road or whatever. So in 1980, and the dream begins. She starts going to comedy clubs and like comedy night at clubs around Denver. And apparently, for the first year or so of this, she just bombs. And not only does she bomb, it's like Roseanne has this knack for turning the audience against her and making the audience hate her. So pretty soon, she's blacklisted from all of the comedy clubs in Denver. But there are like some cowboy bars and some lesbian bars that will still let her in and <laughs> and like let, let her on stage. Cowboys and lesbians need somebody to hate back. I mean, so her sister Geraldine, who is a lesbian, incidentally, I guess has come to Denver. And so she helps. She really works with Roseanne on like, what is it you're trying to do on stage? And so she sort you of be funny. Or you want to piss the audience right, off. Right, right. So together, they they kind of build up this character, this domestic goddess character that okay. is Roseanne's brand. This Who is the, we're all much more familiar with. Yes. So, you know, Roseanne on stage and in life was brash, foul-mouthed, wildly unpredictable. 
and hysterically funny after she worked some kinks out. And huh. stuff. I'm sure she would just get into it with audiences who booed her or whatever. Like, that's the only thing that makes sense in this. <laughs> All right. I have a few of her more enduring jokes. Uh, she, <laughs> I mean, it's hard to, it's hard to overstate like how funny she was. I pulled up her Tonight Show performance and like, she just, she is having so much fun doing that. It's anyway, it was, it was a good time. So uh, she says, as a housewife, I figure when my husband comes home at night, if those kids are still alive, hey, I've done my I've job. I've done my job. Yeah. Yeah. Me and my husband found a foolproof method of birth control. Every night before we go to bed, we spend an hour with our kids. <laughs> Women complain about PMS, but I think of it as the only time of the month when I can be myself. No. <laughs> I'm not going to vacuum till Sears makes one you can ride on. I mean. I mean. Lawnmowers. All right. Within a few years, she'd become a big deal in the Denver scene. And I think she was touring around the Midwest at that point. Like, she... She had fans. There the were great, great American comedy tour. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there were the, like comics from L.A. were like, you need to, you, you got to come out. We know who you need to talk to. <laughs> so she heads out to L.A. with Geraldine at her side and goes to the comedy store to try out. She is immediately picked up. Um, I forget the woman's name, but she is a legendary. I mean, she. I think she gave Richard Pryor an early perch to, to do comedy in L.A. Anyway. So August 1985, she appears on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, her first television appearance. It was splendid. Her career, like... Trajectory up. She calls Bill in Denver and is like, okay, quit your job, pack the kids, come on to California. And he does. Okay. And her life will never be the same again. Wow. Tom Arnold... (laughs) <laughs> All right. He's born March 6, 1959. He's a Pisces, Pisces yeah. in Otumwa, Iowa. He's one of six kids, and his mom abandoned the family early on. His oh, God. Dad did his best. But again, like both of these kids had, there was a lot going on in their childhoods that may have left them wanting a bit. As a teenager, he went to work at the local meatpacking plant, got himself fired. Uh, he told Entertainment Weekly, Quote, if I hadn't gotten fired from the meatpacking plant, I would still be working there. Because I guess everyone in town did, right? Like, If you're in a small factory town, yeah. you'd go to the factory. Yeah. The, yeah, 70s, yeah. So he takes some college classes, got interested in comedy, and by the early 80s, he was traveling around the Midwest doing stand-up. Oh, no. And in 1983, I think, either Milwaukee or Minneapolis, he meets Roseanne when he opens for her, and he's got this weird routine that involves goldfish like an aquarium of gold he had trained goldfish or something don't know i don't think he had trained goldfish (laughs) but he apparently made it work and so they became fast friends in 1988 they're just friends there's no no they're just romance okay right for years yeah so in 1988 roseanne the tv show is happening and she is in this insane dispute with Everyone associated with the show on, like, the network side. I think she was okay with her fellow actors, but she just, she can't deal with suits. Like, this is a constant through line in her life. She just cannot deal with network executives, with the Writers Guild. With with authority. Yeah. 
Or, put another way, she can't deal with the people who know how the fuck to take her art and make it into something that can go on television. Sure. So, anyway, she invites Tom Arnold to come out to California and work as a writer on her show because she is in this, like, power struggle with the head writer and executive producer, a guy named Matt Williams, who, in her telling, was absolutely at war with her. She believed that the show was supposed to be an extension of the stand-up act that she had been honing for half a decade, and Williams kept coming back with scripts that really didn't do that. And he was apparently very focused on... He was very threatened by the strong female lead. Okay. And actually, with I guess with Laurie Metcalf, like, strong female leads. So she said, like, he just kept putting basically castration jokes into... Oh, no. Yeah. And she she said she wasn't going to do them. The whole thing, it was not about turning, like, her, like, the John Goodman character, Dan. It wasn't about emasculating him. It was just a different presentation of... Anyway, so Matt Williams, she and Matt Williams were not on the same page. Okay. And he tried to get her fired by, like, calling in the lawyers and saying, like, Roseanne's refusing to perform and thereby violating her contract... And she's like, no, I'm perfectly willing to perform. You need to change this line where I like completely insult, you know, the Dan character, which is anyway, creative disputes. In 1990, she tells People Magazine, and that's how we had to pull the show out every fucking Friday. I'd go home and go nuts. It was intense hatred, intense. So there's a little problem here in that her husband, Bill, also works on the show. Oh, God. Not as intensely as she does. He's also now the majority caretaker of their children. Sure. Which, you know, he had been the breadwinner who went to work every day and she stayed like it was Role reversal. big time mm-hmm. and it it's not working out for any of them. Also, the tension on the set, and I think tension is an understatement, the unbridled chaos of the Roseanne set was just like... Devastating. Yeah, it was devastating to everyone involved. So at one point, Bill was taken to the hospital thinking he had a heart attack. He was 38 years old. Oh, my God. It was an anxiety attack. In a story as old as the hills, the sudden influx of fame and fortune and one spouse's wildly changed status, especially when that spouse is the woman in the relationship, broke the marriage. She and Bill tried counseling, but she was routinely on set 16 hours a day. And when she had downtime, she said she pretty much consoled herself with cigarettes and carbs. <laughs> like, mm. they were, yeah, they just were emotionally checked out from each other. Mm. And the kids were, they were suffering too. So their oldest, who was 14 at the time, discovered alcohol and eventually ended up in an inpatient adolescent program for several oh, months no. to get her life back. She was like stealing Roseanne's car at night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was it was not good. Uh, although rehab does seem to have worked, and it seems like everybody's in a good place now. And like, okay, you know, in so much as being Roseanne's family can afford that, I don't know. So at this point, Roseanne says that it really hit her that neither she nor Bill were required to stay in a marriage that was making them both unhappy. And it's a big realization. Yeah, you know, she was like, I always expected I would just be married for life. And then, you know, a couple of years into everything being crazy in California, like, it just occurred to me, like, we don't have to be miserable. Right. You know, he doesn't either. So 
1989, early on, she heads to New York City so that she can be in her first movie called She Devil with Meryl Streep. Right. Which not, not a bad first project. I know. It must be mind warping. So she invites Tom Arnold to come visit her. He's on the road, I think. She's like, hey, swing by New York City. I'm here for weeks or whatever. This begins a quite torrid affair that would become her second marriage a full four days after her divorce from Bill was finalized in January 1990. (sighs) They were married for 16 years, and she remarried four days later. Whoa. Yeah. That is some extreme rebound behavior. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. The early days of their relationship were a headline-generating nightmare. Tom had a massive cocaine addiction. I mean, if you got trashy divorces bingo, I mean, that stamp that square every week, basically. Okay, so Tom had a massive cocaine addiction, and Roseanne was drinking way too much, and I think smoking too much weed, and whatever. Like, they were both kind of out of control on... Drugs and alcohol. Yeah. Okay, other fun fact. This is so... This is so fucked up. Tom had been fired from the Roseanne writing staff by Matt Williams's replacement. Okay. Because Roseanne did force Matt Williams out. So he gets replaced. He fires Tom because Tom was always like high on set and wasn't really contributing anything to the writing anyway. Oh, no. And so when they start dating, Tom Arnold is supporting himself and his drug habit by selling information about Roseanne to the National Enquirer. Excuse me? Yes. You're joking. I am not. And like, he admits this in interviews with her, like, they both know this is happening or that this How was- How big of a violation of trust is that? <sighs> Whoa, Rainer. All right. Ugh. Also, while they were dating, Roseanne got a call from his roommate letting her know that Tom was hemorrhaging from his nose- because of cocaine. cocaine. Oh, no. So she had to like rush out and take him to a hospital and then detox, which I think was a quickie detox so that he would be out in time for the wedding. Totally healthy. Priorities, Stacy. Priorities. Totally healthy. Oh, okay, so this was also the year that Roseanne had her infamous turn at the mic to sing the national anthem in a screech. Maybe sing is the wrong word. She screeched the national anthem ahead of a Padres baseball game. And at the conclusion, she spit and grabbed her crotch just to round out the experience. So if you think that quietly kneeling for the anthem is disrespectful, I have some tape for you from the 90s. (laughs) It was a very different time. By December of 1990, Vanity Fair had a long spread about how thoroughly Tom Arnold had taken over Roseanne Barr's life and career. Ooh. Red flags. Giant ones. Quote, he manages her, he produces and guest stars on Roseanne, and he co-writes her stand-up material. Arnold orchestrates every aspect of his wife's life, from cover stories to investments to what she eats for lunch. Nope. These responsibilities used to fall to managers, lawyers, Barr's former husband Bill Pentland, and her sister Geraldine. Arnold fired or separated all of these people from Barr, except for her agents at William Morris, who recently negotiated a large, all-encompassing deal for Barnold Productions, Roseanne and Tom's newly formed partnership. This is so toxic. Super, super. Okay, so Vanity Fair notes, this is... All of this stuff seems so relevant, given sort of where she's ended up today and how thoroughly she got. Yeah, because that's what I'm thinking. Like, for a 
strong-minded, smart, career-driven, focused person, you're just going to give your autonomy and control and power up to yeah, so Tom Arnold? Yeah, here's Vanity Fair's analysis of her. Barr is perpetually afraid that she is being used, mistreated, or victimized, and Tom convinced her that her advisors, her manager, her sister, her lawyer, and others, did not have her best interests at heart. Arnold offered a solution. Marry me and I will protect you. I will defend you from these vampires who are only out to destroy your talent, make you feel inferior, and steal every last dime. You sold news about her to the National Enquirer, you dick prick. The fuck? But I mean, think about, like, Donald Trump's messaging that she fell for hook, line, and sinker, right? For sure. Same thing. Like, the elites are out to get you. They're gonna, I don't know, take your guns and make you get gay married? I the message is very confusing. It's very confusing. Paranoia is a bitch, but Tom clearly understood the type of buttons that his new wife had. This is a direct quote from him that just makes him sound absolutely terrible. Quote, People used to control Roseanne because she was afraid they were going to leave her, or else they convinced her that her career was going to falter, or they were going to take her kids away. When you have that fear, they have power over you. When we got together... I knew that people would say everything that they did say about me. I predicted everything that happened, but it doesn't matter. She loved me in spite of all those people. It was a tough time and I was trying to get off drugs. But once I cleaned up, I said, these people are gone. And now they are oh. all gone. Oh. This is, yeah, this is just massive, massive terrible. Years later, when Tom was on the reality show, I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. <laughs> He talked, he talked about how the two of them concluded that they should get married in the first place. He said, quote, We really decided to get married because one day we were like, nobody likes either one of us. We should probably get married. That's a great idea. Yeah. To we pledge had, your life to someone else. We had a lot in common, but it got crazy. Jeez. Like, victimhood, it's a real thing that makes you make really dumb decisions. Anyway, the Roseanne set remained absolute chaos, which is apparently where Roseanne thrives. At the end of the 89-90 season, Jeff Harris, who had replaced Matt Williams, took an ad out in Daily Variety that said, quote, To my friends at Carsey Werner, ABC, to the cast, crew, and staff of Roseanne, my sincere and heartfelt thanks to all of you. I have chosen not to return to the show next season. Instead, my wife and I have decided to share a vacation in the relative peace and quiet of Beirut. Wow. Yeah, so I think we're seeing some of the issues that have haunted Roseanne all her life and how she's really susceptible to arguments from men along the lines of everyone, everybody wants to hurt you and I alone can protect you. But let's talk about her show, Roseanne, that ran for nine seasons from 88 to 97 or whatever. It featured a working class family, the Connors, in a well-worn home in a working class neighborhood in Illinois, raising three kids. John Goodman played Dan, her husband, and Laurie Metcalf played Jackie, her sister. And Roseanne works in a plastics factory, and Dan works in construction. And it was really like, it, it was a pretty epic portrait of working class America sure. that I don't think, I think Laverne and Shirley was the last time that, like, that station in life was normalized. And kind of what followed Roseanne was stuff like Friends, which just celebrated beautiful young new yorker right like 
Like Roseanne was revolutionary for the time. Like you didn't miss that show. No, I loved it. That's it. Yeah, it's so it's so sad to me, and it was sad at the time that Roseanne's life was such a catastrophic mess. Because I loved the show, and you know, like Sarah Gilbert has just gone on to be like apparently a wonderful human and talented actress, and like. Anyway, I was a really big fan of Roseanne back then, and I do remember as a young teenager being baffled by the batshit personal life of Roseanne Barr. Some of this was clearly a classism issue, as I grew up in a stable middle-class home, and Roseanne and then later Roseanne and Tom were creating their brand about, around being and you know white trash. Uh, so at their wedding reception, Tom got on a microphone and bellowed out, we're America's worst nightmare, white trash with money. So, and this was back before, like, you know, now there's all sorts of like t-shirts and apparel and stuff that, that are like redneck and proud. This was before that. Like, I can see all this leading into that. This is so trashy. Yeah. I really didn't realize the size of the chip on Roseanne's shoulder at the time or how integral that sense of alienation and victimization were to the character and the show. And honestly, I don't remember it that way from first run, but clearly those feelings have become defining to Roseanne in later years. So during this marriage, Roseanne was also exploring things like her own mental health. She was kind of coming to grips with some childhood sexual abuse that later she semi-recanted because she's an unreliable narrator of her own Mm. life. She's had issues with addiction. Obesity has been an ongoing it was part of her stand-up routine. It was, I don't know, like she has, she struggled. So she's also been open about suffering from multiple personality disorder. And Tom Arnold would later tell a reporter that during the marriage, Roseanne had 27 different personalities. Oh my God. Only two of whom liked him. That is not a good ratio, man. No, no, no. So yeah, she'd had all of these supportive professional and familial relationships and, you know, With Tom, they were just gone, and lawsuits took the place of those nurturing and realistic and professional bonds. Her sister, who had been her first manager and helped her craft that whole domestic goddess thing, had moved to L.A. with her before Bill did. Right. Did not speak to her for 12 full years. Wow. Like when Roseanne, at one point, there was a, a big like cover story where she came out as an incest survivor. And her parents and sister were both like, no, she's not. And like the parents took lie detector tests. I mean, it. and then, yeah, like in 2011, Roseanne was like, yeah, I really. That was just one of my personalities. I kind of lost touch with reality during that time. This makes it very hard to like evaluate anything. Has she been to therapy? A lot of it, I think. Oh. Well, but I I genuinely don't know. Okay. And I don't want to make fun of... No, this is this some significant mental constraints and yeah, quite possibly some mental illness. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So another portrait of just how chaotic things were between Roseanne and Tom in 1993, they divorced the next year. In 93, they purchased a farm near Eldon, Iowa, close to his hometown. They also bought a pizza place and converted it into Roseanne and Tom's Big Food Diner. It was the only restaurant in town that was open past 6 p.m., and it served loose meat sandwiches like the Lanford Lunchbox on the Roseanne show. Okay. It closed in 95. Also in 93, they staged a fake wedding with their assistant, Kim Silva, and then promoted the idea that they were part of a three-person marriage. 
So it's just this like, Roseanne was simultaneously one of the most powerful people and certainly women in Hollywood. And off the rails. And on the other hand, she was a complete joke. Like she just was constantly sabotaging herself. And Tom Arnold, I think, was fundamentally, I think he was trying to sort of savage her in his own way. There was there were not good dynamics in that relationship. However, for Valentine's Day 1994, which is like two months before she filed for divorce, Tom had Roseanne's face tattooed onto his chest in a Hail Mary attempt at saving like the relationship. You could not get away from these headlines. No, that's the thing. <laughs> it was trashy. I mean, it was trashy. It was trashy. Roseanne filed for divorce from Tom in 94. Things had been crashing between them for a while while he was working on True Lies with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Still a good movie. Still a good movie. Holds up. I actually haven't seen it in years, but it it's probably, a good movie. probably holds up. He would come to set and complain about the antics at home. So as Roseanne was moving out, he gets home one day to find that she had taken all of the remote controls, she had dumped all of his clothes into the pool, and she had taken all of the ice cube trays out of the freezer and taken them with her. That's what uh, uh, Judith Nathan did. Oh, yeah, the remote controls. She took all of his remote controls. You can't watch yourself on TV. I know how to get you. So just in case, like, you're not clear on how this couple was viewed. So when Roseanne filed for divorce, Tom Shales at the Washington Post was assigned the story. And he basically opens with, is this just a publicity stunt? And their publicist was like, she has filed for divorce. And what's going to happen next? I don't know. It may or may not be the end of it. And Shales is like, the end of what? And she's like, the end of them as a couple. But yeah, she says it's not a publicity stunt. She is serious about it. He is not living at home. And stunner, it's a very volatile situation. (laughs) You think? Yeah. So, all right, they divorced. And in later years, both have continued with their careers Tom's appeared in many movies, some of them noteworthy. He hosted the Best Damn Sports Show period for a few years in the 2000s. He announced in January that he and wife number four are divorcing. And in the Trump era, he's had this weird fixation with tracking down tapes showing Trump's malfeasance. But let's be honest, we don't need secret tapes to know what's up with all that. It's true. Tapes would just be overkill at this point. You're in danger. Roseanne's next husband, Ben Thomas, had been part of her security detail. Oh, I forgot all about Ben Thomas. Oh, yeah. She had a son with him. Yeah, they were together through O2 and through, I think, in vitro fertilization, they had uh, one child together. And she's been with her current boyfriend, Johnny Argent, since 2003. Oh, wow. That's a long time. They live on a 46-acre macadamia nut farm on Hawaii's Big Island. You know what what else? problems do you have living on a 46-acre macadamia nut farm in Hawaii? You're not joking. Go have some fun. And she picked it up for less than $2 million in the 2000s. Go have some fun. Seriously. Hit the beach. Learn to luau. No, learn to hula. Sure. Not learn to luau. Learn to luau, too. Learn to luau, too. Go have fun. Yeah, Roseanne's politics were progressive, but also quixotic, which isn't really unusual for Hollywood stars. And I guess she had been sliding into conspiracy theory land for quite some time before the 2018 tweet that ended the hugely successful Roseanne reboot that ABC had rolled out. 
And her concept for the show seemed genuinely well-intentioned. She talked about wanting to help people across the glaring divide in the country talk to each other again. But then, of course, she called a prominent African-American leader the love child of the Muslim Brotherhood and Planet of the Apes. And everybody was like, wow, there really is no bridging that divide, is there? Can't say that. No. Her excuse was pretty awful as well. She, who once butchered the national anthem for laughs, went on Hannity who despises the NFL for tolerating silent, respectful protests during it, to explain that she thought Valerie Jarrett was Middle Eastern. See, she's not racist. She just hates Muslims. Famously, she was fired, Roseanne Tudato was canceled, and ABC later brought back the Connors by killing off Roseanne's character with an opioid overdose in episode one. Sarah Gilbert, her one-time on-screen daughter, seems very much at the helm, and Roseanne has publicly blamed Gilbert for her firing. Rosanna's also blamed liberals, the show's producers, network executives at ABC, and of course, the press. Of Gilbert, Roseanne told Washington Post this year that, quote, she will never get enough until she consumes my liver with a fine Chianti. Oh, God. So, for trash cans... No, hold on. So okay. I'm, I'm kind of struck as you're telling me this, and Roseanne not really claiming anywhere... None. Okay. So no let's talk responsibility. About, no, let's go back and talk about Kathy Griffin and Roseanne Barr for a second. Sure. And female comedians. Because Kathy Griffin certainly made a bad joke. Oh, yeah. She made a bad decision and a bad joke. I don't, I don't see her denying and embracing. Yep, that was all me. Shouldn't have done that. Yep. Won't do that again. Revising my, like, she has embraced taking responsibility for and said, yeah, I see maybe what I did wrong there. Right. It doesn't seem like. Because I want to identify with feminine... Right. Well, and Samantha Bee's um, calling Ivanka a feckless cunt, which is A, totally inappropriate. Like, be harder on women if B, hard to dispute the truth of. The line with things that don't work. But on the flip side of that, if it doesn't work and you want to say it's just a bad joke... You got to claim responsibility for that. It's not everybody else in the world's fault. Well, and... Right. Her initial reaction was, oops, I was on Ambien. And so Ambien tweeted out, racism is not a known side effect of any of our drugs, right? Like, so she's been not taking responsibility for it for a long time. But I mean, according to Roseanne Barr and her family, the reason that these other comedians have have been able to come back is because they supported Hillary Clinton. No, they... yeah, it was a bad joke on my part. Sorry. I went over the edge. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I didn't, I don't see Richard Pryor uh, apologizing for any of his comedy. I don't know why women apologize when they do that, but they do. Well, they're forced to. And they're to. able to work again. Right. I think she'll be able to work. She's going on tour with Andrew Dice Clay now for the Voices of White America tour. I'm not sure what they're calling it, but. Yikes. Yeah, it, it's really. It is disappointing. God, Roseanne, when I was a kid, was just such an excellent television show. And I loved all of those characters. That is just, that is a story of tragedy. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to interrupt. I just couldn't help but think about the parallel. No, no, no. Trash cans. What you got? Trash cans. Kind of went about it a little different this time because I think they, they need separate trash cans. Oh, okay. And I think that Roseanne would best be served with just one gigantic trash can that is as large as the mountain that she is carrying around as a chip on her shoulder. There you go. That works. And 
Tom Arnold gets five extremely controlling trash cans with uniformly terrible judgment. I think that works. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, I That's don't. Some trash. I don't know how we do comedians, and they're not, f- and the stories aren't funny. <laughs> Unexpected. Yeah, I thought this was going to be a little. Yeah, I thought so too. When you were like, "Let's do like comedians controversial comedians, tough lives." I didn't know quite how tough. But yeah, it really does seem like she sustained physical brain injuries as a child and then has had a whole bunch of like substance abuse issues, like things that would exacerbate, you know, physical trauma. So I it's really it's difficult to like mostly I just feel bad for her. I think that she I think that's it. I think yeah. she really struggles uh to stay mentally healthy and and doesn't get there a lot of the time. So So for any of you who enjoyed heart warming tender wonderful trashy divorces last week we <laughs> totally well, went the 180 yeah. degree difference this week <sighs> thank you for hey. tuning in don't forget be on the lookout for a spooktacular halloween mm. special be sure to get your personal hometown mm-hmm. spooky trashy divorces into us this week at trashydivorces at gmail.com it's okay if they're not spooky but seriously if you were left for a ghost we need to know. Mm-hmm. Patreon coming at you this week with some different surprises as well as the returning Side Chick series. So be sure to tune in there. Yowza. We need to take out the trash now. That was yeah, a lot of trash. A lot of trash. Y'all keep it trashy. Mm-hmm. Not as trashy as Roseanne and Tom. Uh-uh. Thank you for tuning in. We'll see you next week. Yep. Bye. And thanks to you for listening. Trashy Divorces is a Hemlock Creatives production created and produced right here in Atlanta, Georgia by us, Stacy and Alicia, with a little research and writing help from the brilliant Melissa O. Our art is by Sydney V. Smith. That's Sydney V. Smith at CarbonMade.com. And our music is used with permission of Ratsy. Check her out at Ratsy's store on Instagram and definitely drop into Ratsy's store anytime you're in Oberlin, Ohio. You can contact us at trashydivorces at gmail.com or find us on the World Wide Web at trashydivorces.com. If you need more trash candy in your life, our Patreon community includes some of the very best humans around and thousands of hours of bonus content at every level of support. Join the fun at patreon.com slash trashydivorces. Interested in some Trashy Divorces swag? Check out our merch shop and Trash Panda Enthusiasm Society at bit.ly slash trashy gear. Want to advertise with us? Reach out to sales at advertisecast.com for more information. And last but not least, come play with us on social media. I keep most of our Trashy Divorces Instagram hopping. Stacy and I share it up over on Facebook, including our Trashy Divorces podcast discussion group. Come join us over there and thanks again, everybody, for listening. Keep it trashy, y'all. <laughs>